This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 26, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Attica prison riot is not clearly remembered. In fact, the events of that riot have been covered up and fundamentally misrepresented for decades. Heather Ann Thompson is author of the new book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy. We spoke earlier this month. You expect that uh, prisons are places of unrest generally because the vast majority of people there are in prison. And uh, you've written a book detailing the Attica prison riot and some of the things that we've learned more recently about it. Give us a broad overview. Well, Attica is a a historical moment that uh, people think that they know a lot about. They know that there was uh, a big riot there in 1971, and uh, there was something bad that happened there because Attica has come to connote uh, the worst of the worst men in prison and one of the most dangerous facilities. But it turns out that Attica was, in fact, one of the uh, really most extraordinary human rights events of the 20th century. And it was indeed uh, something that we we got wrong at our peril. We we didn't know the history, and as a result, we came to really misunderstand what prisons are meant to do, and uh, and what what the men inside of them, and indeed the women inside of them, are really like. I guess what fomented the specifics uh, the specific event. Well, Attica is a. a prison, a maximum security prison in upstate New York. It still exists. It was built during the Great Depression and indeed even today looks exactly as it did back then. Uh, And like today, it was a prison that was severely overcrowded, uh, way disproportionately filled with um, African Americans, Puerto Ricans, although there were a lot of poor whites there as well. And like today, uh, that prison was uh, really run in such a way that people's basic human rights were denied. Um, Of course, everyone in there had been sentenced and uh, accepted that they were uh, serving time, but but they had not been sentenced, for example, to uh, being fed on 63 cents a day, having one square of toilet paper a day, a shower a week, um, really slave wages. And so these men, uh, while serving their time, felt that they were entitled to basic rights under the Constitution. So they tried to get that met um, by writing letters, really working through the system, trying to appeal to state senators and the Department of Corrections. And that really gets them nowhere. Um, And ultimately, and and I might say as well that even many of the corrections officers inside were completely sympathetic with these guys' uh, needs. They too felt that the place was being run shoddily and made their lives less safe. But ultimately, on September 9th, 1971, a series of completely unexpected events and indeed involving a, a gate that came down unexpectedly or opened unexpectedly leads uh, to complete chaos. The prisoners uh, being able to take over the prison, take guards hostage, but then really this morphs into a very organized uh, prison protest where they elect guys out of the cell block to speak for them. They bring in outside negotiators, and for four days, the media watches as they negotiate for better conditions. And, and some media were inside the prison. 
Absolutely. The, the guys inside understood that one of the reasons why abuse is allowed to take place in prison is that these institutions, though public, are completely closed to us. And so their first order of business was to ask that the media come in. And indeed, there was Tom Wicker from the New York Times was one of the observers, but there was also local media, national media filming. Uh, interviewing the guys inside. Uh, and I might say, I mean, the guys inside might surprise uh, listeners. You know, these were, of course, people, some who had been convicted of serious crimes, many who uh, were there for crimes related to addiction, um, burglary, um, theft. Also, vets were in there uh, suffering PTSD. There were also a lot of parolees. There were a lot of 19, 20, 21-year-olds in there um, serving parole time. So it was really a uh, again, a glimpse of a, inside of a prison that we might not expect. You say that it was an organized event pretty pretty quickly after that, but uh, the state decided to intervene. Right. So the negotiations go on successfully, uh, really around the clock for four days and four nights. And um, ultimately, the sticking point is amnesty. The prisoners feel that they cannot surrender without uh, legal and uh uh, protections against physical reprisals, so basically amnesty. The state refuses. The governor at the time was Nelson Rockefeller, uh, of course known by people of that generation as a really liberal, moderate Republican. But Attica was his line in the sand. Um, my book reveals that there was intense discussions going on with the White House. Nixon was not at all uh, interested in this as a as a human rights struggle. He, of course, saw it as a conspiracy of um, black activists. And ultimately, the governor decides to send in hundreds of heavily, heavily armed troopers who'd been out there for days getting angry, incidentally being fed on rumors of inmate atrocities by the FBI. And uh, they go in, and within 15 minutes, it is a bloodbath. They kill 39 men, both prisoners and their own state employees who were hostage, and shoot 128 men uh, extremely severely, some six, seven bullet wounds. That in itself would have been a remarkable historical moment, but, but what was particularly remarkable was that the state then stood outside of the prison and told the media, and thus the world, that something entirely different had happened. They, of course, understood that this was a disaster and said to the public that the prisoners had killed the hostages, indeed that they had tortured them, slit their throats. And that lie goes out everywhere. And, and indeed, I argue, has a, has a very serious effect on what had been a moment of prison reform sentiment uh, really sours the nation on that and helps to build the huge system we have today. So the state government retook the prison uh, successfully. What, in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, what happened? Well, inside of the prison, of course, you know, we we, did, we didn't know at the time. Um, we subsequently know that there was torture that went on for days and weeks of the men inside. Um, we we know that the hostage families and prison families who had uh, experienced uh, the death of a loved one, uh, their their pain was utterly denied. They spent forty years trying to have their stories told, but meanwhile, the state began an investigation 
into what had gone wrong at Attica, incidentally conducted by the same officers that had retaken Attica. And the upshot of that was that over the course of all of these decades, not one member of law enforcement has ever been held accountable in a court of law. Um, and so, you know, Attica is emblematic for many of the tortured themes we now have in our criminal justice system. Your book reveals some things that were not known beforehand. Uh, you've detailed some of those, but I, I, how long it was the incorrect narrative about that? essentially understood to be the case. Well, right after the the retaking of Attica, the, the lies about the prisoners having killed the hostages were relatively quickly remedied because there was a very brave coroner who refused to to perpetuate that lie. But but unfortunately the damage was done. So even to this day you can go into small towns in upstate New York and people will tell you that the prisoners killed the hostages at Attica and that Attica really does mean the worst of the worst. Uh, but I'm hoping that my book corrects the record because I feel like if we get this history wrong, we really seriously misunderstand uh, what the role of prisons are in our society, who is in our prisons. And to do that book, incidentally, I mean, it took 13 years because to this day, the state of New York sits on those records and makes them almost impossible to find. I just happened to uh, have some extraordinary luck finding records I undoubtedly was not supposed to see to tell the story. As you know, and this is it's, it's crazy to think that uh, people who it is known by the government uh, killed people, uh, and there is there's simply no investigation into into that. Right, and in fact, the the Attica investigation, instead of uh, indicting troopers or corrections officers who went into Attica that morning, instead indict sixty two prisoners. So, of course, the the world watches as they are paraded in and out of courtrooms for for years. Uh, incidentally, none of that ends up sticking, but but the damage is done. And uh, yeah, I mean, my my research reveals that the state knew who had shot individual prisoners. Incidentally, knew who had killed some of the hostages. And uh, in and it it there was really a concerted effort, uh, secret meetings at Rockefeller's pool house between the head of the New York State Police, um, the Attorney General, and Rockefeller's. Uh, men, including Rockefeller himself, to kind of get the story straight. Um, we now know that the state police spliced film, um, uh, doctored photographs, uh, had several versions of trooper statements, and all of that is revealed in the book. But again, the, the, to the end, not of reopening cases or prosecuting anyone today, actually um, both just to correct the record, but also to suggest that we really need to uh, take uh, this notion of equal justice under the law seriously in our country, and also that what goes on behind walls um, of prisons really, really matters, right? That the people inside of them, especially now that we have, you know, more than two million people inside of them, uh, is a reflection of the society writ large. There is no statute of limitations on murder uh, to the extent that these people who were responsible for killing these prisoners and these. Uh, employees of the prison, do you believe that uh, prosecution is appropriate? Um, 
you know, it, it's really a moot point. I, I, one of the most one of but the if, if the idea is to correct the record, if the idea is to change the narrative about this event. No, I, I don't think actually. I don't even think that the survivors that that's what they're advocating. I think what is appropriate, and the state of New York has it fully in its power to do, is to have something much more akin to a truth and reconciliation. Commission um, to open their records finally, once and for all, um, to finally let the survivors and the the widows and the children understand what happened there that day, and and to finally get a sense of closure. Um, nobody wants anyone to go to jail. What they want is for the state to acknowledge that this trauma happened, and uh, for the record to be open and acknowledged. To the extent that this event uh, contributed to a narrative that then contributed to public policy. What was that through the 70s and 80s? Well, we had already begun uh, a pretty historically remarkable war on crime in 1965, uh, incidentally in the uh, uh, Johnson administration, not the Nixon administration. I mean, that's when we really begin this, and it's largely in response to the civil rights unrest once it comes north. Um, and by the way, before the, before the murder rate and uh, the violent crime rate become at all historically remarkable. Um, that had started, but what we really need to explain is the emotional fervor behind it, what it is about uh, the American voting public that becomes so punitive and so hostile to the idea that people behind bars, that it's sufficient for them to be removed and serve time, uh, that, that, that that time has to be so much longer or so much more punitive or so much more aggressive. So, so Attica, it's not the only thing, but it definitely goes a long way to explaining why it would be. I mean, we, we essentially get a lot of events in this period wrong because the narrative is controlled. And, uh, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's just literally the case that um, key parts of this story were never revealed to the public because of the desire to protect law enforcement. I mean, incidentally, the same thing happens at Kent State. The same thing happens at Wounded Knee. Um, this is a moment of real aggression on the part of state authority. And yet the public comes away thinking that the problem is the people. The problem is participatory democracy. The problem are the protesters. And we need to explain that as historians because the implications were great. What were the discussions between state and federal authorities? Why didn't the Department of Justice uh, act? You mentioned Nixon, but, but oh, there had I to mean, have been some specific discussions Oh, there. I will tell you. I mean, it's really extraordinary. The right On the day of the retaking, um, there are conversations between Rockefeller and Nixon, and uh, it's clear it's been a bloodbath, but Nixon has essentially one question, and that question is, was this a black business? And Rockefeller says, indeed, Mr. President, it is, or it was, which, of course, was not true. It was a multiracial uprising. But, but that really shows you where the presidency was on this question. And um, we now know that the Justice Department was asked to look into it. And even though there was the preponderance of the evidence that civil rights abuses were taking place in that prison, they declined to open a case. Um, and we know that ultimately this makes its way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the only justice who's willing to consider it is Thurgood Marshall. So at every level uh, of power, uh, the folks inside and the hostages uh, who were there inadvertently and had also been damaged uh, were, were abandoned. And so it really does tell us something about power. Heather Ann Thompson is author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. 
She spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on criminal justice held earlier this month. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.